Welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from Christian worldview. Today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyar as he explores the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. Regardless of what he does for them or tries to reach them, then God begins to deal with them as you would deal with the enemy. And you don't always reveal your hand to the enemy. So you have, like if you're fighting World War II, you have a code which the Allies know, which the Axis does not know. And that's a sad necessity of a world where one side wants to destroy the other side. Verse 13, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The Lord's thinking, I have a lot where these have come from. This one is pretty straightforward. And if you don't get this, we're in trouble. Because this is supposed to confuse the unbelievers, not you guys. So stay with me here. Verse 14. The sower sows the word, the word of God. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, is that literally necessary for each person who rejects what he hears? Is it only that Satan has come? No, Satan is real. Satan is the leader of the rebellion against God. But human beings are really good at unbelief, whether or not Satan is personally, immediately available. There's one Satan, and there are billions of human beings. About seven billion human beings, one Satan. It took Michael the archangel three weeks to get from one location to another location because he was impeded with spiritual warfare. So Satan is not omniscient. Just like Mary is not omniscient, she can't hear everyone's prayer simultaneously. She's not omniscient or omnipresent, so too Satan. He doesn't know, necessarily, when one Christian is witnessing to a neighbor who's an unbeliever. But there are also demons. And demons are involved directly in the spiritual battle. And we have part of us, a component of us, where we are body, soul, and spirit. And angels, even fallen angels, are spirit beings. And it is very difficult for us to understand how a human being is composed. If we look at almost any aspect of ultimate reality, physics, uh, biology, astronomy, it's incredibly perplexing. So how is it that a spirit being can somehow influence us to tempt us or to discourage us from taking God's word seriously. How can they do that? I'm not sure how. But maybe they have a way to fan into flame our pride or our covetousness. And so when we should be attracted to the Lord, Satan or a demonic influence comes and tempts us with something of the world, something in our flesh. Is it possible that Satan himself can be personally involved when a given individual is being witnessed to? Sure, that's possible. Absolutely. 
But when something happens in the Bible, it doesn't mean it always happens in exactly that way. It depends, of course, on what's being taught. Verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, our dear friends who are, let's say, Southern Baptist, who believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, and they believe that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and we are eternally secure, they have an especially difficult time with these and many other similar passages in the Old Testament and in the Gospels because Jesus talks about those who are in him, like every branch in me, in me, that does not bear fruit will be cut off and burned. Jesus talks about those who lose their salvation. That's because he's speaking to the 12 tribes of Israel. He's speaking to those under the covenant of circumcision and the Mosaic law. And he says to them, you must endure to the end to be saved. And that is a common theme throughout the entire covenant, Israel's covenant of circumcision and the law. So in the kingdom, you have to endure to the end. In the body of Christ, as soon as you go through conversion, when you trust in Christ, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, and you cannot lose your salvation, even to the extent where Paul writes that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself because we are in Christ, we're dead to the law, we're identified with him. Now, I don't think any of that means that in heaven and for all of eternity, God will have people there who hate him. Love still has to be freely given. But in this life, when we become a Christian, we are then sealed. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment and the guarantee of our inheritance. So that is wonderfully comforting, and it's very different, and it's one of the main distinguishing characteristics of the body of Christ as compared to Israel, the covenant of grace as compared to the covenant of circumcision and the law. So the Baptist believes that the body of Christ began in Acts chapter 2 the typical Baptist. But they believe that, they give mental assent to that, but it doesn't mean anything in their theology. They don't actually apply that. So when Jesus is teaching to Israel, they do not say, unless they're in a corner and they have no other choice and they desperately grasp at straws, and then they'll say, well, that was before the body of Christ started. Or they'll say, that's before the church started. But what they should do is be consistent. And when Jesus is teaching in the Gospels, they should say, all this teaching is directed to Israel. It's all based on the Gospel of the Kingdom, circumcision and the Mosaic Law, all of it. It's not based on grace, because in the four Gospels, not once does Jesus mention the word grace, 
Not one time. But the word grace is replete through Paul's epistles. And it's scattered here and there through the rest of the Bible. But Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles to whom God gave the dispensation of grace for us. So the Baptist has a very hard time being consistent and actually believing what their doctrine is, that the body of Christ began in the book of Acts. They say Acts 2, and that tends to introduce additional confusion because God gave grace to Paul, so it's in Acts 9 where the body began. So they have the 12 apostles in the body of Christ, which is wrong. We say Acts 9, 12 out. The body of Christ began in Acts 9, and the 12 apostles are out of the body. They're not in the body. So if you don't understand that, then in hundreds of verses where Jesus is speaking to Israel, specifically about things that are true for Israel, the Baptist preacher says, well, this is not true for the body, so I've got to wrestle with this, and I have to make it say something it doesn't say. I have to stretch it to the breaking point. Verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Remember King Saul, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. He had a great start. All indications were that he was obeying God. In fact, God said to him through a prophet that your seed could have sat on the throne in Israel forever. That is, the Messiah could have come from Saul's descendants. But because he disobeyed God, because he rebelled when he was caught, so to speak, he didn't repent, he dug in in the sin, God cut him off. So Saul could be described as soil on whom the word of God was planted and it began to grow, but then it withered and died. It doesn't mean that he never was part of God's covenant. It doesn't mean that. So the Baptist would say, not distinguishing the differences between law and grace, the Baptist is forced in every situation, like in this parable, to say, well, they were never saved to start with. And that is really difficult to fit that in to every instance in the Bible under the covenant of circumcision where people were saved and then they rebelled and turned against God and God cut them off. Verse 20, But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. So people think that they get away with things, but the Bible says your sin will find you out. Jesus said men will give an account not only for their sins, but even for every idle deed and every idle word. Wow. Verse 23. 
If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And we see that phrase and phrases like it in the scriptures. And the idea then is you have to be looking at this from God's perspective. And if you're not, you're going to miss the point. Verse 24. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. That is very similar to what the Lord taught in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer. He said, Father, forgive us as we forgive our enemies. And then Jesus said, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. If you do not forgive them, God will not forgive you. And if God has forgiven you, and then you refuse to forgive someone else, he will put all your sin back on you. Now, is that grace? That is not grace. That is works. That is good works receiving what is due. With the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That is works. That is an example of the deeds of the law and the payment that is due. That is very different from the gospel of grace. Verse 26, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. Isn't that true? All that we are learning is so fascinating to know about statoliths. That's a big development to know about those little anchors that plant seeds will grow. But how does the seed know that the statolith is at the bottom and we got to go that way? We don't know that part yet. The more we learn, the more we are bewildered and realize how much there is that we don't know. Now, reductionism is the opposite of what we find when we explore God's creation. Reductionism, when you could take something and define it as the sum of its parts, that's reasonably simple for men to comprehend. Like if men build a pump, we build a pump and it has a structure to it and a lever and, it, and we de describe the pump, we describe all the parts and we know what it does. Well, God's creation is nothing like that. You look at the parts and it's bewildering how it does what it does. It's just bewildering. And the further in with a man-made machine, as you look further into the details, they become simpler and simpler, like a printing press. You see, oh, this part, it's the shape of a letter, and it gets dipped in the ink, and it pushes on the paper, and it puts that letter on the page. Pretty simple. With a living organism, a living cell, the tinier and tinier part of it we look at, the more unbelievable it becomes. The simplest cell in the human body is a red blood cell. It doesn't even have a nucleus. It's made of, I think about, well, it's made of hundreds of different kinds of proteins. 
and its membrane is many times, as in hundreds of times, more flexible than latex, but it's stronger than steel. And the membrane knows, it has a memory of the shape that it should be in. And scientists have thought, well, it sort of has that donut-like shape, but without the hole in the middle. And that shape is very good for absorbing oxygen and releasing oxygen. Except they now realized, well, when it's in the capillaries, which are so tiny, the red blood cell is twisted and smushed into the weirdest shape. And that's where it does all its work. So what's with a red blood cell? How does it function? And it's bewildering. So Jesus is saying, look, this farmer, he plants the seed, but he doesn't know. He himself does not know how it grows. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So we take advantage, rightly so, God wanted us to, of what God has provided for us. But we can't understand it. All of our brilliant minds trying to understand a single living cell, it is, to this point in time, utterly bewildering. The atheists who think that life came from non-life, now life is pretty complicated. It needs to be able to reproduce. There are proteins. It takes hundreds of proteins to make a single protein. A single protein is a very complex folded piece of biological uh, machinery. If you tried to make a single protein by chance, you'd need a trillion universes with every atom being a little laboratory trying to, by chance, fold some acids to make a protein. If you had a trillion universes doing that for a trillion years, you might end up with one protein by chance. And so what? You got one dead protein. What is that going to do? You need another trillion universes coming up with a different protein by chance. And if they both happened at the exact same time, you'd have two dead proteins. And what if you had a billion proteins, a billion? Well, you take a dead animal, and as its carcass is decomposing, you have billions of protein molecules. There they are. Where's the life? There's no life. So it is completely inexplicable to us if scientists are able to create the DNA exactly of a grasshopper, exactly, in the laboratory, from scratch, could they make a grasshopper? They can't make a grasshopper. It's so extraordinarily sophisticated. Verse 30, Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed. And atheists love this because they say, well, what Jesus described isn't true, so he doesn't know anything about mustard seeds. He made mustard seeds, but that's what they say in their hubris. It is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth, but when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. 
So a couple of things here. They say, well, first of all, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. In fact, there are spores that are so tiny, they float in the air, you can't even see them with the naked eye. But a mustard seed, when we're in Israel, we'll get mustard seeds and pass them around to everybody. And you put them on your fingernail, and it's hard to count them, but there'll be dozens or scores of mustard seeds on your fingernail. They range in size from about one millimeter to about three millimeters. Now, are there smaller seeds? Yes, there are. But are there smaller seeds that a farmer will take and place them individually, plant them? Not that I know of. I've never heard of that. Now, there might be somewhere in all the world, and that wouldn't falsify the Lord's point, but as a general rule, a mustard seed is the smallest plant a man would take and plant into the ground. And they say mustard seeds don't grow trees with branches. They are herbs, and they're rather small plants. And as a general rule, that's true. They are generally small. But there are exceptions in Israel. There's the black mustard plant, which grows along the Jordan River, which reaches heights as much as 10 feet tall. There are also plants that botanists have just recently learned about, where you have a plant, and you have millions of them, and they're little plants, bushes. But you plant them in a different environment. Let's say you take them from a continent, you plant them on an island. They begin to grow, but all of a sudden they don't look like all the other bushes, a million that have grown from those seeds. They begin to grow a thick bark and a central stem, and they become a tree. <laughs> and they become a big tree, 20 feet tall, a tree. And it's the same species. And we wonder, how does that happen? How does a plant become a tree? Well, God made animals and plants to respond to different environments in the most amazing of ways. And this particular mustard seed that grows into a, a great plant that birds would come and nest under its shade. Remember, the birds ate the seeds earlier, so they seem to be a symbol of something that's not good. This is meant to describe something that is not the ordinary, not what is expected. The kingdom of God often takes on a size and a shape that is foreign to what was intended. God wanted the kingdom of God to be pure of individuals who love and serve him and love their neighbor. But what happens is that people come in who don't believe in God, but they pretend to be ministers. Or back then, they pretend to be rabbis. They're priests. They're prophets who hate God. And so there could have been an effort to identify every one of them and get rid of them. But Jesus said, in reality, what's going to happen is that they're going to grow along with the sheep. You're going to have the goats. And it will not be until the end times when the two are, uh, 
are identified and the goats are removed. So in the meantime, the kingdom of God is going to be unwieldy and it's going to have in it uh, deformities and individuals who are actually wolves in sheep's clothing. We have the presidential election underway and the Republican candidate is Obama in Romney's clothing. That's what we have going on. So let's continue in verse 33. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. All things, of course, a figure of speech, as is normal. Does that mean that Jesus explained most of everything there is to know? Quantum mechanics? No. He explained to them a tiny fraction of all things. All usually doesn't mean all. It sometimes means all. Often it means many or most or some or even a few or even a tiny sliver of a fraction. And here it means a tiny sliver of a fraction. He's explained to them the smallest number of things, but these are all the important things that they needed to know. So all typically gets its meaning from the context. All the things that they needed to hear from him while he was on earth with them, that's what he explained to them. Verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, so water was coming in over the side. And the Sea of Galilee is large enough that it will take hours to get from one side to the other for experienced fishermen. And if you have bad weather, you're not going to be able to see either coast, and it could be harrowing like in any similar experience. We had an experience like that on Colorado's Grand Lake, which is a tiny lake, but a storm came up out of nowhere, and we thought we might die. It was beautiful weather. We're out in bathing suits and T-shirts with kids on a sailboat, and all of a sudden, storm clouds came in, lightning and thunder, hail pelting us, and we made for the nearest shoreline, and we took refuge under the front porch of a beautiful home, and people were there and allowed us in. They gave the kids peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So, so this boat was filling with water, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And that's exactly what Jesus can do for us. There's tremendous turmoil in the world, but if we trust him, we can have a calm, a soothing calm in our hearts and our minds. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? 
How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they're going to find out who he is. May God bless you guys. Hey, this is Nicole McBurney again, wrapping up today's show. And I want to remind you that the only thing keeping us on the air is you. So if you like what you're hearing and don't want us dropping off the airways, you can go to kgov.com slash sponsor. That's kgov.com slash sponsor to sponsor a show. Or check out our store and pick up some resources, such as monthly Bible studies, our classic televised broadcasts, or Pastor Bob Enyart's life work, The Plot, which helps give you a clear understanding of the overview of the Bible. We sincerely appreciate all of your support, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for Real Science Radio. God bless.